Today is Tuesday, September 12th. The title for our devotional is The Moral Law. This week, we are beginning to explore the beauty of the gospel story through the lens of morality. Most humans and most civilizations have this innate sense of how we ought to live. Ought is a very interesting word that implies a standard that we as humans should uphold, both individually and communally. Animals don't operate on the same principles. There's no sense of oughtness in the animal kingdom as far as I am aware. If my dog eats my sandwich off the counter, it is because of his instincts and desire for food. I don't feel as if he has violated any assumed standard between us. He's simply acting in line with his nature. The only thing restraining him from doing so on other occasions is his fear of punishment from me. This is different than ought. There is, of course, much to be said about morality in the Christian faith. Remember, my purpose in this campaign is to help you see that the story of the gospel is truly irresistible. So to do that, I have two primary objectives this week. One, that we would accept one of the most obvious truths in the universe, that there is a moral law and we regularly break it. Second, that we would just not believe the moral law exists, but that we would cherish it. You may be thinking, John, those two objectives don't sound very winsome or make the gospel sound irresistible. I'm pretty sure this is actually what pushes so many people away. (laughs) This, of course, is true. Uh, This part of the story is not super winsome and quote-unquote feel good. Yet feeling good is not the only aspect of making something irresistible. It must also be true. It may feel good for me to think of myself as the best basketball player in the world, but alas, it's not true. That good feeling will be demolished if I were to play a marginally good Division II college player. It most certainly would be better for me to accept the obvious truth rather than to fight against it. So, for something to be irresistible, it must not just make me feel good or be desirable, but also make sense of the things that I know deep down to be true, even if I don't like it. It is the same for the moral law. It does nobody any good to deny it and act as if it's not true. Yet people do all the time, to the detriment of their own soul. The general consensus in the last century or so in the Western culture has been to point the finger at the moral law as the problem, not humans for failing to live up to it. The thinking goes, if we could only do away with this pesky idea of morality or the moral law and the institutions that impose the moral law on people in society, like the church, in the name of progress, then we could free ourselves from the guilt and shame of failing to live up to the moral law. We start with the guilt and shame and then we say, oh, what's the problem? And we work our way back to finding, oh, maybe perhaps it's the moral law, not us, and our failure to live up to the standard. This has only led to more and more depravity, sin, and ironically, more and more bondage to that sin along with the guilt and shame that comes with it. We think casting off the shackles of the moral law will lead to greater freedom. However, as Jesus reminds us in John 8, 31 to 32, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Freedom is found in the truth, not a stubborn resistance to the truth. Resistance only furthers our bondage, no matter how much we call it freedom. In the end, reality proves difficult to resist. As Lewis writes in response to his critics who said his view was regressing society back to theological views, quote, If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. End quote. The common approach in apologetics, that is, the field of study that argues for the truth of the Christian faith through logic and reason, is to begin with the moral law as proof for God. 
C.S. Lewis takes this approach in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, which I just quoted above. He begins by describing the language people tend to use when they are quarreling. They usually say things like, What you did to me is not fair. I was here first. Why did you shove him? He didn't do you any harm. In all of these situations, people are appealing to a generally agreed-upon moral standards. He later goes on to say about a quarreling situation that, quote, the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard, end quote. Instead, the other man will try to argue why their case doesn't meet the criteria of that rule, or why they have an exceptional circumstance that excuses them from moral culpability. He writes, quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. Just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer, a soccer player, had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football, end quote. These moral standards, whereas they differ in part from civilization to civilization throughout human history, they are remarkably similar. Of course, this is because God has written his law on the hearts of humanity. Romans 2, 14 to 15 says, uh, says the Apostle Paul, writing, uh, primarily he's focusing on writing to the Jews right now, but he says, indeed, when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. He says, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. The reality of the moral law is one of the most obvious conclusions to anyone who has paused to think about it for more than 10 minutes. Yet, in our depravity, it is often denied. Because, as we will see throughout this week, it is easier to deceive ourselves and to rationalize it into something else, rather than deal with the reality of our sinfulness and innate failure to live up to it. But again, that will do us no good to live as if something that is true is not true rationalize it, we humans have created a couple of other potential foundations for the moral law. Moral absolutism or absolute ethics is the belief that there is a universal standard that all humans are held to. This is the biblical view. But a couple of the other uh, basis for ethics are utilitarianism. That's essentially the greatest good for the greatest number. Often you'll hear it rooted in human flourishing. The second one is autonomy. The individual is the locus of authority on morality. Each person is free to choose what is right for herself, while others are free to choose what is right and wrong for themselves. These two views have rather obvious problems. Who decides what is good? What group of people is the greatest number? Are we talking one community, one state, one country, the entire current human population, or the entire future population of humanity? Uh, You can end up justifying some pretty heinous evils when you uh, think of the entire population of humanity or the future of humanity. The Nazis were utilitarian. They defined the greatest number as the whole of Germany. So eliminating the relative few who were a drain on society, like the disabled, was better for the greater number of Germans when resources were limited, at least they reasoned, ethically. They also viewed the Aryan race as the next stage of human evolution. So to spur on human evolution, they eliminated those who didn't meet that criteria. This, they thought, would be better for countless numbers of humans in the coming eras of human history. Autonomy fails with the same example. Who are we to say that the Nazis were wrong when they so adamantly believed that they were right? If you listen carefully to popular media, you will hear these bases for morality everywhere in our culture. For additional content, I've linked you to uh, the book I referenced earlier, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, one of the best books I've ever read. Strongly recommend.